This is the Shift Podcast. And this is Martin Strong in for Shane. And coming up on the Shift Podcast, what made the earthquake in Turkey and Syria so deadly? John Clegg, a professor of earth sciences at Simon Fraser University, helps us understand why this quake is so significant. He also takes us through what earthquakes in Canada look like and why even small earthquakes can cause massive destruction. So why is China sending balloons over the Pacific? Jonathan Berkshire Miller, an international affairs expert with the McDonald Laurier Institute, gives us his thoughts on the situation and why a balloon created a diplomatic crisis for the West. And are you okay with delivery? Because there is no more delicio. That's all coming up on the Shift Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. And with us now to talk about this earthquake is an expert on uh, earthquakes in general. He's traveled around the world studying them, studied their causes and their after effects. John Clegg is with the Department of Earth Sciences at Simon Fraser University in BC and a scientist at the Geological Survey of Canada. And he's with us now. Thanks for being here, John. Oh, my pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to speak with you. Yeah, so we hear about these Richter scale numbers. Uh, this one in Turkey and Syria is 7.8. Uh, describe what a 7.8 earthquake would feel like. This is close to what we call a, a great earthquake, a magnitude 8 earthquake. And uh, it's very, very large, um, you know, in the sense that it affects a very large area. Um, can be hundreds of kilometers of area that is damaged. And as far as uh, the shaking goes, the ground shaking, which is the iconic signature of earthquakes, uh, that can last for up to two minutes, one to two minutes. And that is uh, very intense. Uh, I'm told that in an earthquake of this size, if you're close to the epicenter, um, the shaking is so strong that you probably wouldn't be able to stand up. You would have to basically sit down on the ground if you weren't thrown to the ground. Um, yeah, the, the ground is in motion. It must be uh, unbelievably terrifying to have that experience of what you consider to be terra firma suddenly rolling and behaving like a bucking bronco. Yeah, the the key word being firma, not yeah. <laughs> so, so so these, I guess it it matters where the earthquake happens, where the epicenter is. And in this one, in Turkey and Syria, it was a very heavily populated place. And uh, it certainly looks like the structures and the buildings did not take the earthquake very well. No, there, there are some just uh, uh, really sad photos coming out of uh, Turkey and Syria that show towns and small cities uh, that have been pretty well flattened. Um, there are buildings as tall as t uh, 12 stories that have just dropped to the ground. Um, that, you know, seeing the scale of the, the destruction leads me to believe that uh, they did not properly engineer these, these uh, concrete, steel concrete buildings. Now, Turkey does have, a, you know, the same type of seismic provisions in their building code as, say, Canada or California um, or Japan, um, but it's quite clear that, uh, you know, they're on paper only, that, uh, in fact, they're not being enforced 
and in the eastern part of the country that they're basically not, you know, not building engineering buildings to withstand uh, the ultimately expected type of event that happened yesterday. And the aftershocks I, I've been reading about have been uh, almost as bad as the original earthquake. And I guess uh, every earthquake has aftershocks? Um, not all of them. It, it kind of depends upon the type of earthquake, but you can count on large earthquakes like this having aftershocks. Um, and this is no exception. I, I actually have tabulated about 100 uh, aftershocks that have magnitudes of four or greater, including a couple like you mentioned um, that are uh, seven, 7.5, uh, one that's six. And those t- those big aftershocks um, really uh, exacerbate, you know, make the damage worse. Because you can imagine after the main shock, there are a lot of buildings that were uh, severely damaged but still standing. And a few hours later, you get uh, additional ground shaking during an aftershock, and then they come down, you know. And so this is an ongoing process. Uh, just before uh, we began to speak, I noticed there was uh, an, another aftershock that was that came in on online that was a magnitude four. Now, magnitude four probably wouldn't normally be damaging at all, but if you have a building that's sort of barely survived the last aftershock, it could come down. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess it's a very efficient process. You know, the, the first quake weakens all the buildings and the aftershock just knocks them down. Yeah, that's right. It uh, it's And they, these aftershocks, in some cases, after these big earthquakes, can, can carry on for weeks and in extreme cases for even longer. Uh, there was an earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2012, I believe, uh, where aftershocks continued for about a year. And, uh, you know, they weren't big enough to be damaging, but you can imagine kind of the psychological toll that that aftershock takes. I mean, you, you take a big breath and you say, well, I survived the earthquake, and then another one comes along, and then another one comes along. It's, there's no end to it. Yeah, it must be terrifying, because I've been reading about a lot of people who are afraid to go home, to back to their homes. and yeah. And... And these are people who have had a kind of a rough time of it in general. Yeah, that's right. Um, the really kind of cruel irony of this uh, series of earthquakes is that it's it's happened in an area that's populated in part by refugees from the Syrian war. There are over 3 million refugees that are in the area that was impacted, has been impacted by these earthquakes. And uh, you know, these are people that, uh, you know, kind of fled for their lives uh, to a place that they thought was secure. But, and this is both in uh, northern Syria and southern Turkey. And it turned out that, you know, now they face this sort of uh, additional disaster on top of the war they'd just been through. Wow. We're talking to John Clegg. He's with the Department of Earth Sciences at Simon Fraser University in B.C. and a scientist at the Geological Survey of Canada. And uh, I'm guessing you have seen your share of the aftermath of uh, earthquakes. You've visited a lot of them. What's what's one that really sticks out? Well, the one that sticks out to me, uh, because it could be similar to what we could experience on the south coast of British Columbia, 
was a magnitude 6.3 earthquake. It happened in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2012. And um, you might think that that wouldn't be a terribly damaging earthquake because it's much, much smaller than the magnitude 7.8 earthquake that occurred in Turkey. But, uh, you know, what caused a lot of damage was the fact that the epicenter where you get the most damage was only uh, about, I want to say, seven kilometers away from the center of the city, Christchurch. Christchurch is a city built much like Calgary or Vancouver, a lot of steel, concrete, high rises. Um, and the, in, the total damage from that uh, was astronomical. Uh, you know, New Zealand has a population similar to Alberta and British Columbia, about, I think, four and a half million people. And uh, the hit to their economy was something like, um, well, it was it was really large by dollars in those days. It took a huge toll on the national economy and 180 people died. There were fortunately only two buildings that dropped and they were later shown to have been engineered engineering problems, you know, where they weren't properly engineered. Uh, most of the high, high towers in downtown Christchurch still stood after the earthquake, but they all, most of them had to be torn down. They were red tagged because they were so damaged that it was cheaper to actually tear them down and build them all over again than to repair them. And that's what really cost so much um, and took that big economic hit hit to the economy. So what's the 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 big earthquake, uh, the most, the, the biggest, most powerful earthquake that's ever been recorded, at least? Uh, yeah, the, the largest one that we have uh, good instrumental data for is the 1960 Chilean earthquake. Um, and this was a magnitude 9.5 earthquake. And I can tell you that earthquakes don't get any bigger than that. It's not possible on this planet to produce an earthquake that's stronger than that. And um, it also spawned a tsunami that, uh, that claimed a lot of lives. Uh, and, you know, my kind of, my feeling of how powerful an earthquake can be stems from a photo I saw in the aftermath of the Chilean earthquake. Now, mind you, this is 1960. This is not modern times. This is quite a long time ago. But there was a photograph of a big locomotive, a 1960s era, almost a steam locomotive. You can just envision how big this, this beast was. <laughs> and it was sitting right next to a rail line. And that uh, locomotive had been sitting on the rail line itself uh, when the earthquake occurred. And the ground dropped suddenly and shifted horizontally. And the uh, engine of the the locomotive just kind of was suspended in air for a fraction of a second and came down standing upright right next to the rail line. And one might think that it had actually been placed there, but the earthquake placed it there. So wow. it's kind of nuts. Yeah, it's it's an amazing example of how small we are. It, you know, it's like a big train is like a Lionel HO scale train. And yeah, can be taken well, that's true. And, you know, that's kind of the the impact that earthquakes have on people is it makes them feel very small um, because the forces of nature can, whether they be tornadoes or hurricanes or floods, can make you feel kind of tiny in comparison. 
Right. But can we outthink them? That's my next question <laughs> for you. You know, you and your and you, the big thinkers. Is it getting easier to predict them? Can they ever be predicted, or is it just something we'll we'll never really get a handle on? Well, Martin, that's that's a, a, a very good question. And right now, we are not in a position to predict earthquakes. I mean. There have been attempts to look for precursors like animal behavior, <laughs> kind of snakes coming out of the ground in China and things like that. And uh, they don't seem to work. You know, you can't use them reliably, although people are still looking for kind of premonitory signs. Um, and we can't predict them, but what we can do is put, we begin to behave a little bit like weather forecasters. And I don't want to denigrate weather forecasters because <laughs> we're not very good at forecasting. But <laughs> nonetheless, uh, we can provide kind of probabilities that an area, say like San Francisco, is going to experience a damaging earthquake. You know, these are probabilities, percentages over a period of time. And that may not help kind of a person, a single person very much, but it kind of helps uh, governments and uh, responsible agencies for kind of doing what needs to be done to prepare for these. And they are in many parts of the world inevitable. You know, um, I, Turkey is, it's probably one of the top five earthquake countries in the world. It's, it's kind of being caught in a vice between all these forces that are operating on this country. Um, and, you know, there are other countries like Chile and, um, you know, California, if it were a country, would be in that group, you know, that really, really need to plan for earthquakes because they are inevitable and they're going to be damaging and you want to minimize the damage. Mm hmm. And in, in Canada, we hear a lot about British Columbia, but I, I was looking at some of the big earthquakes in Canada. There was a big one in Quebec, one off the coast of Newfoundland. Um, if you were, I don't know, this sounds kind of crass, but if there was a, a pool or something, a bet going on, where, where would you say um, we are most likely to see a large earthquake in Canada? Well, the the the. It would be British Columbia for the, the really large ones, you know, so magnitude seven, eight, and nine. You're not probably going to get one of those in Quebec or Ontario. You very well could get a magnitude six, and that would be very destructive if it were close to a city. Uh, bearing in mind that, you know, uh, architecture in southern Ontario and Quebec, it's, it's beautiful masonry brick architecture these buildings really do badly in earthquakes they're they're much more vulnerable to damage than sort of steel concrete structures now we have some of those places in bc we have gastown in vancouver where there's a lot of uh, masonry buildings and victoria in particular got a lot of hundred year old buildings um but you know ottawa uh Chicoutimi, uh, Quebec City, they, they have a, a wealth of these buildings that are uh, not really properly designed for big earthquakes. So it's good they don't get anything bigger than about magnitude six. Um, and you did mention one off Nova Scotia that was really a rogue. It was a magnitude seven earthquake on the continental shelf off Nova Scotia and Newfoundland back in 1929. Um, it 
is bizarre. We really don't understand that earthquake at all. It's much bigger than any other earthquake that's occurred in, in the, the eastern Canada. Right. And and I guess another problem or, or a solution, hopefully, is uh, predicting tsunamis. Because I know uh, in parts of BC, uh, there are tsunami warning signs. And, and I guess that is, that's probably uh, one of the biggest dangers of an earthquake in BC. It is. Uh, when we talk about these really big ones, these magnitude uh, nine earthquakes, and, and then, you know, out here we call it the big one, you know, the, uh, the very rare but very large magnitude nine earthquake, they do generate tsunamis. Um, we're pretty lucky that most of BC's coastal population is is sort of inboard. It's it's inboard of Vancouver Island, so um, a tsunami which is actually generated out in the open Pacific, as it would be in one of these earthquakes, is going to lose some of its energy, a lot of its energy, as it passes up the straits and through the Gulf Islands. For your listeners who know the area. Um, and into the Strait of Georgia. And so we're pretty well certain based on the modeling that we can do that by the time one of those tsunamis reaches Vancouver, it's it's going to be fairly small, wouldn't be catastrophic. Um, however, if you live in Tofino or you flew yeah. it on the west coast of the island, that's a very different matter. You might get uh, waves up to 10 meters high or so. So um, you know, for a small portion of the population, uh, this is a big issue. Yeah, because Tofino, if you can't picture it, it, it sort of sticks out into the ocean. It and does. It's very vulnerable, I guess. And uh, yeah, in the event of a magnitude nine earthquake, uh, you know, you'd feel in Tofino for an earthquake that size, you'd feel strong ground motions for three to five minutes. And that should be the signal, head for the hills, because <laughs> you've only got 15 or 20 minutes before that tsunami arrives. Wow. Well, I, I thank you for talking to us. This is so interesting. And uh, and I know you understand just how bad it is in Turkey and Syria, um, what's going on there. So we don't want to make light of that. Um, no, it, but... it's a real catastrophe. And I just hope that, uh, you know, we can get uh, emergency services in there as quickly as possible. Yeah. And keep up the good work because I think, uh, I think you're, you're, you're doing something that I think is very important. It's figuring Thank out you very much, Martin. I, it's a, it's, it's a passion of mine. You know, <laughs> my, my students typically call me Dr. Doom, but it's not. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you. A negative comment. <laughs> Dr. Doom. I'll call you Dr. John Clegg. John okay. is, is with the Department of Earth Sciences at Simon Fraser University in BC and a scientist at the Geological Survey of Canada. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Martin. This is the Shift Podcast. Over the weekend, there was the big uh, Chinese surveillance balloon, and now China admits... There's a second surveillance balloon flying over Latin America. They say, yeah, it's, it's ours. Uh, the Colombian Air Force has been watching it for days. This is, of course, after that other one was shot down off the Carolina coast on Saturday. U.S. divers are currently working to recover the wreckage and imagine what's in there. It should be pretty interesting. I'm sure we'll never see it. 
because it'll be top secret. But China insisted uh, the flyover was an accident and that that balloon was a civilian aircraft as well. And to talk about all these Chinese balloons, Jonathan Berkshire Miller is with us, an international affairs specialist with expertise on security, defense, and geoeconomic issues in the Indo-Pacific. Thanks for being here, Jonathan. Oh, thanks. It's a real pleasure to be on. Okay, now now that there's a second balloon that China admits is theirs, it's over Latin America. Um, are you surprised by this? I mean, is it is it like uh, you know presidents taking home top secret documents? Is it something that happens all the time? We just don't see it. Well, I'm a bit surprised by um, the sort of trade craft in a way, um, Martin. I mean, China has a lot of different ways to procure intelligence, um, and a lot of them are much more high tech. I mean, when we think of balloon surveillance, I mean, we take our minds back to almost the pre-war period or the the war period in World War One. I. I mean, the Japanese use this technology. Um, so that's the the sort of logic that I'm struggling with is the Chinese do have other ways through satellites um, and, and through technology, frankly, uh, to to eavesdrop and, and use surveillance against targets. So, um, you know, the added value, I guess. So what's the value proposition for the Chinese to use these? I think that's something that, you know, myself and others are struggling with. The other potential ex- explanation on that, though, would be that maybe they're intentionally trying to signal something. Um, and also use this as a way of disrupting uh, nascent diplomacy that's now uh, happening with the United States. So that's a, a potential option as well. Right. And the big question that they're always saying is, is people say, are you spying? And the Chinese government says, no, it's a meteorological research tool. Um, you know, seriously, uh, what are the odds of that being true, that it's just for meteorology, meteorological study? I mean, without obviously seeing the, you know, the the intelligence of of uh, what the defense uh, communities in the United States and Canada and elsewhere have been seeing, I mean, I think that it's next to none, frankly, um, with the information that's available. It's clear that these um, crafts have, like, for example, propellers, which allow them to maneuver. That's not uh, normal business for meteorological um, balloons. Um, and also, I mean, the fact the proliferation of these, I mean, this is not one balloon that's gone astray. This is several balloons that have gone astray. Um, uh, that, uh, in addition to finally the flight path of these uh, balloons, I mean, going over the most sensitive uh, sites, military sites, um, some of them with U.S. nuclear missile silos, etc., leads me to believe that it's very fraction of a percent that these are um, for civilian use. Right. And and what kind of information uh, do you think that they would be getting with the balloon? Or, or maybe let's go back to what you said earlier about um, it's kind of just them sort of disrupting things. Is that go into that further? Because I'm not sure I knew exactly what you meant. Um, you think that it might be the Chinese government just kind just trying to test test the United States. Is that what you meant? Well, I think there could be two explanations in this one as far as disruptive and one as far as, uh, you know, the way that they're gauging reactions. I think one potential plausible scenario would be that they literally floated these quote unquote trial balloons um, to huh. test the the readiness and reaction of the United States and, and, and others such as Canada, but per, primarily the United States states to see how they would respond um you can gain all sorts of intelligence um sort of data by by how the united states is responding as well to to a challenge like this so that could be one on the disruption scale though 
There was also uh, an important uh, piece of diplomacy that was scheduled to happen this past weekend with uh, United States Secretary of State Anthony Blinken uh, planning to go to uh, Beijing uh, for talks with his counterpart. That is now canceled. Um, so in advance of that visit, um, you know, the logic seems to be lost. If they really wanted uh, Blinken to visit, um, you know, uh, why would they time these uh, these balloons or, the you know, this sort of incident right around that period? So, you know, was it intentional? Was it intentional to disrupt uh, any sort of form of diplomacy? And what's behind that, I think, is is what many people are grappling with. So if you, you say if they were maybe perhaps uh, testing the response by the, the U.S. military, um, how did the U.S. military do? How What's your opinion of their response? Well, I think, I mean, from what we've heard anyways, that the United States, uh, even from the beginning uh, trajectories of this most recent balloon, in addition to other balloons that they have uh, that they have noticed before, um, was able was in control. They were able to surveil it. They were able to surveil whether it was a threat. Um, I think there were a lot of questions um, and fair questions from the press in the United States about why wasn't this balloon intercepted earlier. For example, it was first noticed around the Aleutian uh, Islands in Alaska. Uh, potentially one of the reasons why it wasn't shot down uh, while it was over the waters there was uh, because of search and rescue. For example, it was shot down over the Carolinas in the Atlantic um, in the warmer and much more warmer waters there. So while the United States Navy has not been able to recover all parts of it now, it's a much easier effort doing that in February than uh, doing that in, uh, in in Alaska. So that could have been one of the potential reasons why uh, the United States uh, reacted as it did. And I would imagine that anything they can salvage from this balloon would be incredibly valuable for intelligence purposes. I think, yes, there'd be high intelligence value to understand, you know, necessarily how the Chinese are targeting this. I, as I said, I don't think this is the most sophisticated Chinese surveillance device, but I think that they would, it would get a sense and a window into the different types and ways that China's trying to procure intelligence. But to be honest, there's another value there, and this might not be from an intelligence perspective, um, but a symbolic value there in saying that, okay, there are certain lines that can't be crossed. Uh, and especially if these lines um, become public. I mean, I think what, one of the things they always say in the intelligence game is uh, just don't get caught. Um, and when you get caught, um, there are consequences for being caught. So I think this is an example of, you know, again, if this was not to be noticed, uh, you know, there were previous balloons before, but all you had to do is look up in the sky. A lot of people saw this balloon. Uh, it was all over the media. Uh, I think that put the United States obviously in a very complicated and difficult situation. Um, so they took the actions that they did. Yeah. And, and it was over, I guess, Saskatchewan and Alberta reportedly. Um, was that just uh, just part of the, the flight path? Do you think that they have some, uh, you know, something that they're specific on in Canada? Um, so I don't think that they, they necessarily they were intentionally targeting Canada, but it is worth noting that this would impact our NORAD system. And I think this comes at a time where uh, we have pledged to anyways to modernize our NORAD system in tandem with the United States. But the reality is that our system has been malnourished for several years um, and there are gaps in it. And I think one of the stated goals of the modernization is to ensure that we have the ability to surveil um, and pick up on these um, sorts of intrusions very quickly. Um, so to me, it's a glaring sort of, you know, flashing light um, warning about some of the, the weaknesses that we have um, uh, in continental defense. 
We're talking to Jonathan Berkshire Miller, an international affairs specialist with expertise on security, defense, and geoeconomic issues in the Indo-Pacific. We're talking about the big Chinese surveillance balloon that was shot down over the weekend. Now they've uh, they've admitted there's a second one that, that's been seen over Latin America. Um, and how much do you know about these balloons? Because what I was seeing on TV, um, it looked very small, but it was so far away. Um, I've heard that there are, that this this balloon was quite huge. Describe mm-hmm. what it was, what it looked like, and what it contained. Yeah, so I think that they're, uh, you know, we're still analyzing some of the components that it would have contained. But as you said, the diameter was quite significant. Um, and, and, you know, an example of this, I mean, and there were previous balloons uh, before where, um, you know, years ago, probably about 20 years ago, um, uh, that, uh, that you know, Canadian um, Air Force tried to shoot down with, with uh, conventional fire, weren't able to shoot down. Uh, that's part of the reason why they used a missile uh, to actually take out this balloon because of the, the diameter and the size of it. They wanted to make sure that they, they got it in one shot. Um, as far as some of the capabilities, as I mentioned before, they had propellers, which would allow it to maneuver itself. Um, clearly, high-definition photography um, was one of the main uh, stated types of intelligence that they were procure. And they might have also had audio surveillance on this. So I think those sort of um, elements, uh, precisely what sort of intelligence gathering capabilities were, were placed on this balloon is something that we're going to suss out in the coming days. And you talk about audio technology. This It must be incredibly expensive technology. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and I think if depending on the nature of the technology that we find, and I think this is what the the deep sea Navy divers are are doing currently uh, off the coast of the Carolinas, I think that will either validate um, uh, or at least it'll add color and context to um, the Chinese claims that this is purely a civilian aircraft. And, and one last note I should mention on that is that um, the Chinese insistence that insistence that this is a private sector and a you know a, a corporate civilian vessel, um, yet they don't name uh, any company um, that <laughs> that this belongs to. So I mean, I, th- I think immediately some of the credibility goes out the window. Um, and my last note would be to say that as we know, many Chinese companies are state-owned enterprises, which effectively are beholden to the state. Um, so uh, so there's a number of factors that we need to figure out. Yeah, I wonder, perhaps it's just to take some of the heat off TikTok, because everyone's <laughs> talking about TikTok being a Chinese company, and uh, they're on everybody's phone. I, I mean, well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the reality, and that's funny you bring up TikTok, because I mean, the reality is, you know, we're talking about the balloon, and it's a, it's something that's that's all over the press right now. But um, an app like TikTok is far more dangerous, and some of the technologies and the abilities to surveil, often sort of not even covertly, overtly, giving uh, giving away data um, um, willingly. Uh, many of our populists through apps like TikTok, I think are probably a much bigger issue, frankly, um, than one or two balloons. But obviously, uh, this is this is what's in the press at this point. So what, what's the most dangerous data that they can pick up from TikTok? I mean, what what is it that they that they could want that would be of of value to them? Besides well, sort of consumer stuff. Sure. A lot of it's your metadata. Yeah. Some of it can track your GPS or your location tracking. Um, and, and a lot of it is more expansive to, to track what your network's doing. So not only what yourself is, you know, what your own your own personal data, 
and your own locations, but a lot of it um, can connect to who you're network, who you're networked with, um, some of their information, some of their metadata. Um, so, I mean, again, TikTok's not the only app that can that can do that or that harvests uh, users' data. But the challenging thing, and I think, why there's so much attention on TikTok is that its parent company, ByteDance, is is based in China and has actually been shown uh, to to share some of that intelligence with the Chinese security intelligence services. So I think it's not necessarily um, the practice of the company itself, while some of those are questionable too, but it's the issue of who they're beholden to. Mm -hmm. And and in terms of security, um, you think of what the balloon can do, you know, uh, you were talking about Perhaps there was even high-tech audio surveillance, which which is amazing. I what would they what would be something that they could use that for? Well, you never know. I mean, I, again, uh, this is something that, uh, depending on some of the targets that they were over, um, you know, uh, you know, thinking about especially in the United States, uh, the trajectories that they've taken. I mean, we're talking about uh, proximity to U.S. nuclear missile silos, all sorts of sensitive U.S. Um, uh, bases. Uh, you know, so depending on 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 what sort of capabilities they had there, we're we're not sure. And I guess this leads us to the case of when uh, this when these uh, materials get recovered at the bottom of the ocean, we'll have a better sense on on what level of intelligence uh, was procured. It might be minimal frankly. Um, um, but I think that we're not going to know until we until we get that uh, that material. And it, you may have answered this a, a bit, but are you suspicious that it was just too obvious? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm suspicious that, you know, again, if it was one random balloon um, that floated, for example, off the coast of Alaska, you know, maybe veered into Canada and, and you know, uh, crashed into Quebec or something or, or crashed into the east coast of Canada, that would sort of make a bit more sense that they completely lost control of it. But the trajectory of it to fly over, for example, the Aleutians, where it's very sensitive U.S. military um, bases and technology, and then to fly down towards that trajectory over over Montana, where there's also very sensitive U.S. military bases, and then all the way and then make its way all the way across uh, the east coast of the United States. So that's one data point. And then the second data point is there's there's other balloons. Um, so, I mean, how many balloons have gone astray? Uh, I mean, this must be a terrible uh, civilian company for all of its balloons to suddenly <laughs> just be floating all over these sensitive sites all over the world. Yeah. So so finally, I mean, as as someone who who understands how all this works, when it comes to China and North America, not just the United States, but Canada as well, um, what what is your worst fear? about uh about this kind of surveillance and 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 what what do you think that china could get that could really harm uh north american interests well i think my fear is not precisely on on a few uh you know weather balloons uh or however the the chinese want to frame it or military surveillance balloons um which is clear that they are but i think my bigger fear is that we have been woefully behind um, managing the China threat, whether it's um, whether it's these surveillance balloons, whether it's um, surveillance in our technology. Um, and I think, to be honest, this to me is the the prime challenge is being ourselves engineered, not only as a defense and security intelligence community, but also as a civil society. And this is not to play up a, a uh, you know, a, a threat uh, bigger than it needs to be, but to understand that this is a real challenge to our universities, to our research institutions, 
um, and to many layers of our society. So I think that's the bigger takeaway. I, to be honest, I don't put too much stock in a couple surveillance balloons. I think there's many more capabilities that China have that worry me, <laughs> that would keep me up at night much more. Um, but I think, to to be honest, this is an eye-opening example of of just how clear this challenge is. Yeah. And as kind of a tech gadget nerd, I would love to see what was in that balloon, but I guess we never will, will we? That, that'll, that'll be top secret. Yeah. I don't think we'll see the precise elements. Although the interesting thing, and I mean, I think the Ukraine war has has shown this much more clearly. There's been a change, a sea change in a way in the intelligence community to publicize data much more um, you know, you, you've actually even seen it with this example. I mean, I, again, many uh, who are not even in the security community could see the, these these balloons. But I think the United States has an interest in naming and shaming um, and as much detail as possible. I think that they it's in their interest in a way to release this um, to to show um, that China really is is, um, you know, surveilling citizens. So I think, you know, it's going to be a combination. There's obviously some things that they won't be able to share, but I think that they will actually try to share as much as they can. Uh, it'll be interesting. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan Berkshire Miller, an international affairs specialist with expertise on security, defense, and geo-economic issues in the Indo-Pacific. Very interesting stuff. Thanks for taking the time. It was really fun talking to you. Thanks, Martin. That was a lot of fun. This is The Shift Podcast. Are you okay with Delicio? Frozen pizza. Kinda. Frozen pizza. I mean, you know, it, it, I would say this, it gets the job done. You know, it's, it's not, it's never going to taste as good as a fresh pizza, whether it's homemade or you mm. pick it up. Like even I would say little Caesars, which is the cheapest, greasiest pizza that $5 can buy is still going to taste better than a frozen pizza. However, the frozen pizza still has a very important place. It's, dirt cheap like ridiculously cheap mm -hmm. it'll you know save you in a bind when you just don't have enough time to cook and you just need the sustenance and it's you know like a, a staple for parents who just don't have the time or energy to cook for their kids one night just frozen pizza the kids are happy they're happy so i think as mediocre as it tastes i still think it has a place in our society well, I, I think it, it, it's work it's cu is cut out for it because it, it's competing with the best thing that there is, which is delivery pizza. Yeah, it's, it's tough competition. You can't, you can't really compare the two, can you? It's yeah. just so much better fresh. Like it, it's, and I, I wonder why the frozen pizza just, it's got to be in the dough, right? Because the dough never tastes the same. And even if the sauce is okay, it's just, it's never... As good, and it's and never as packed like with toppings. Never, yeah. It's never, yeah, yeah, it's not. And although you, I will say, pizza pops, I would take a pizza pop over a frozen pizza any day. Actually, you you are disgusting me at this point. I don't know <laughs> if I've ever eaten a pizza pop, but the idea oh, of a pizza pop on. is. Do you remember? Do they still have Panzerato? And I remember Panzerato in Toronto. They they were these uh, like vendors. They were they were small sort of uh, almost like food trucks, and they were basically pizza that was folded over and deep fried. Oh my god! Oh, amazing. it was good. Oh, it was good. But when it comes I to hope that's still in Toronto, yeah. <laughs> what frozen pizza? Uh, Catherine texted, and I kind of agree with her. Not a fan of the Delicio. She says the way to go is definitely Doctor Utker, uh, which includes uh, Ristorante and Casa, Casa yeah. de Mama. 
uh, and Giuseppe's frozen pizza. Giuseppe's. Yeah, Giuseppe's. I know exactly which ones. They have a, you know, it's my secret with the Giuseppe Dr. Oker ones is that they, you can buy these two packs of small frozen pizzas instead of one big one. And those two small frozen pizzas taste better than the big ones. Jonathan Chung is not. Yes, he seemed, Jonathan, right he Jono knows, seems to know what I'm talking about. I know because uh, that's my breakfast. Yeah. People, <laughs> our listeners yeah. know that I uh, actually run the show until 5 a.m. Pacific time. And so I have to eat my breakfast in the studio. So I usually have uh, microwave pizza with me for breakfast. Right. See? <laughs> Keeping uh, the shift running. That's the power of frozen pizza right there. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and this is an ad, an actual ad for Delicioso, Delicioso. Am I saying that? And I've lost, I've lost the ability Delicio. to say it out loud. Delicio. De Delicio. Delicio yeah. pizza. This ad is from the 2000s. Let's hear it. Uh, hey, I got your pizza. Would you mind bringing that in for me? Yeah, we're really not supposed to uh, do that. Come on. It's not delivery, it's Delicio. And you're not a delivery guy, Dad. <laughs> no wonder I don't have any friends. With its fresh baked taste and delicious toppings, it's not delivery, it's Delicio. Ah, that made me laugh out loud. Oh. The old trope. Yeah, that was uh, the porno yeah, delivery uh, guy. I don't think they make a. I don't think they'd make that uh, commercial uh, today. <laughs> Dad! Yeah, and that masterpiece of an ad, not enough to save Delicio. Deli I, I've lost the ability to say it out loud now. You got it. It's Delicio. You're Delicio. saying it right. You're and just I, getting in your head about it. Yeah, I, I'm totally in my head. Because all yeah. the ads, it was always, it's not delivery. And, and it, was, it was one of those ads where you would see the people, uh, you would see the people in the ad and you knew that you would never meet people in real life who would say those things because they were arguing <laughs> that, that yeah. the Delicio pizza was a, it's a delivery. No, it's got to be delivery. No, you you have to be an, have to be an idiot not to to know that that's a frozen pizza. I think. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. So I I have some sad news. <laughs> I have some sad news. Nestle no. Canada said this past Wednesday it will wind down and end sales of its frozen food products, including Delicio, wow. uh, Stouffer's Lean Cuisine, and Life Cuisine. In the Canadian marketplace, lean cuisine—that was like a—that was everywhere. Um, that was everywhere. That's over, pretty huge, actually. That's not a—that's not a like an insignificant. Yeah. Uh, Cancelling of products. I'm pretty surprised to hear that. Well, um, I I think there's a lot of competition now in those kind of frozen prepared foods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and some of them are really good. Crave. I've been eating the crave ones mm -hmm. because. They've got this burrito bowl one, and it actually has some nutritional value for a, for a frozen meal. And it tastes very good. And so I wonder if Nestle, just their, their bottom line on it was so minimal, and the competition was just a little bit too tight that they didn't feel like putting in the millions of dollars necessary to keep the product tasting as good as the competition, so they just can it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely true because they, they just can't compete and people want actual food, healthy food. Um, yep. And uh, that's the way it goes. So uh, wow. uh, as of December 2022, the monthly average retail price for a frozen pizza in Canada was $4.27 
up about mm-hmm. 5.7% from the same time in 2021 at $4.04. Wow. That's according to our good friends at Statistics Canada. Okay, are you okay with being smart? Hmm. I, uh, I, uh, I am not that intelligent. <laughs> well, okay, I, I am hard on myself. I cannot do math. If you asked me to do a mathematical equation right now, my brain would put up a brick wall and it would not, it would not compute. It just would not. However, I'm really smart with stuff that's completely useless, like historical facts and weird little snippets of information that I just tend to hold on to. So that's why I do radio is because I could not do a career in the sciences or any kind of hands on work. But, you know, the memorization and the linguistics and all that, that's that's the stronger suits. So that's where I feel smart. But in high school and elementary, I did not smart at all because half of your classes were the stem ones and i was always at the back of the class like i have no idea what to do with fractions i have no clue what i'm doing here and i still feel that to that to this day but i got a job so that's uh (laughs) good unlike my math teachers told me i would never get here i am yeah (laughs) yeah See, Dad. Um, yeah, no. It's it's interesting how you're sort of smart at some things and not so smart at other things. Some people are really good at. Um, I, I'm really bad at things like population of cities and things like that, and distances and years. I don't know what it is. I my brain just shuts off when you start talking about how far is it from, you know, San Francisco to Los Angeles. I mean, I, I have no idea. I, don't, I, I couldn't tell you. My, my guess would be ridiculously wrong. Hmm. So. See, yeah, it's just little brick walls. Some people, it's that, and others, it's the fundamentals of mathematics. So, you know, we deal with yeah. the, the short straw, the cards you're dealt. Yeah, and my, I, I'm good with trivia, things that really will yeah, not help too. me. I know who produced certain albums and all those kind of things, but I think if I had spent that much time thinking about, I don't know, law, I probably, or medicine, I probably would be a wealthier man. No. Perhaps. But you remember that TV show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? I do remember that show. That was everywhere. It was inescapable uh, on, uh, on TV when I was a kid. Yeah, it was very, very popular for a brief time. Well, I can guarantee you that this kid is smarter than his fifth grader, is smarter than most of us. Why? Because uh, nine years old, this kid just graduated high school. Yeah. David Belogan is a certified class act. Belogan, who lives with his family, hasn't moved out yet. He's nine years old. Uh, (laughs) He lives with his family in Pennsylvania. He became one of the youngest ever high school graduates, and he's already finished a semester of community college. David took classes remotely from his home in Bucks County. He loves science and computer programming. I want to be an astrophysicist, and I wanted to study black holes and supernova. David's parents have advanced degrees, but raising a young son with extraordinary intellectual gifts is challenging. I had to get outside of the box. Playing billow fights when you're not supposed to, throwing the balls in the house. Like, he's a nine-year-old 
with a brain that just have the capacity to understand and comprehend a lot of concept that's beyond his years and sometimes beyond my understanding. A member of Mensa, David credits a number of favorite teachers. Mr. He taught them a thing or two in just the few years it took him to get through the 12th grade. David was an inspirational kid, definitely one who changes the way you think about teaching. After completing a semester at Bucks County Community College, the family is now looking at colleges and universities across the country to try to find one that's just the right fit. Well, am I going to throw my nine-year-old into Harvard while I'm living in PA? No. Another tough question on this unique journey. But so far, David and those around him have come up with the right answers. I smell a scholarship. Oh, I several. <laughs> and, and it's so true because we were talking about how smart we are. There is kind of a, I, I, I guess it's the way we're kind to each other uh, ourselves is we say, well, I'm good at certain things. And, and, and you think, well, we're all kind of smart. Some people are, no, this kid is really smart. There's something going on in, in that brain. He's a genius. Yeah. Absolutely genius. And it's cool. I, I love these stories because you think you hear stories about Einstein and how how ahead of his time his brain was. And, you know, just basically, hmm, that doesn't make sense. I'm going to go in my study and figure out how the universe works, even though I don't write when we figured it out 50 years later. Right. It's just cool to think that, you know, this kid could, you know, be thinking about the equations and the physics that we can't even comprehend yet. I mean, that's the kind of potential these these people have nine years old graduating high school. He skipped over a lot of crappy days and years in high school and nine years yeah. old. <laughs> no kidding. A lot of really bad lunches in the cafeteria, but you, you meet people all the time though, who are kind of special. Like usually at a radio station, it's the engineers. They're not the most social people sometimes, but they can like take things apart in ways that you don't even know that you don't even yeah, understand. It's, it's yep. pretty amazing. There's, there's only one known person to ever finish high school before the age of nine. Uh, Michael Kearney holds the Guinness World Record for being the youngest person to complete secondary school at the age of six. Uh, uh, wow. In his wow. teens and 20s, after graduating from the University of Southern Alabama at 10, uh, Kearney won a million dollars on the game show Gold Rush. So wild, <laughs> very Absolutely impressive. Wild. Um, now this is a, an odd one. Are you okay with Goonies? I love that movie. I love the Goonies. It's such a great film. It's just a, such a time capsule to the, uh, to the 1980s and sort of those adventure films. And one of my best memories of high school was the final project in grade nine English was a film study on the Goonies. And it was like, I, I, that's one of the best grades I ever got in high school was my <laughs> film study project essay on that movie. It is so good. Yeah. I kind of missed the Goonies cause I was, I was too old and then I was too young to have kids when it came out. So I, I mean, it, it's an iconic movie. I know that. I mean, in a, in a sense, what's the Goonies about? It's about a group of kids that are just kind of like troublemakers and, uh, you know, they're, they call themselves the Goonies. You know, Goonies never say die. And then they accidentally start searching for some pirate treasure. And it turns out the pirate treasure is very real and they're going up against some criminals trying to do it and who also happen to have like a troll. I don't know how to describe Sloth other than he's kind of like a troll and they just kind of just go on this pirate adventure in a big cave and it's uh, also partially filmed in uh, Vancouver if I remember 
correctly. Oh, really? And then yeah. and those crooks would have got away with it if it wasn't for those meddling kids. Uh-huh. It's true. And I, I do know that there was a house that was used in the movie, a white house. And uh, I, I think it was in, in Portland. Um, according to, to CBS News, Jericho Labonte, uh, a 35-year-old guy, was in a yacht on Friday morning, and heavy surf and rough waves rolled the boat and threw this guy into the Columbia River, which runs through Oregon and Washington before opening up to the Pacific Ocean. Um, the rescue of this guy required a rescue swimmer to jump in the water, uh, the turbulent, turbulent water to pull Labonte to safety. Um, it's what happens next when things get, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of goony. We put together two and two that it was the same guy, and we have since learned that he stole a boat uh, from the port of Astoria. But there's more. Only a couple days earlier, another incident involving the same man and a local landmark in town, a home that starred in a popular movie. He'd went up to the Goonies house, covered the cameras with stickers, put a fish on the porch and then was dancing around the property. And it doesn't end there. Jericho Labonte is wanted on BC wide warrants. Victoria police putting out this poster only two weeks ago. The charges against him, criminal harassment, mischief, and three counts of failure to comply. The charges are adding up the longer he's out. And unfortunately the hospital, he uh, was released from the hospital before we connected the dots and realized that it was the same person. But the story finally reached a conclusion late Friday night. Labonte was arrested, ending a bizarre series of events that even this veteran police chief No, I cannot say that I have. has never seen before. Jazambala, Global News. But wait, there's more. <laughs> I always love a news story when all these things start unfolding know, right? and the reporter has to say, but there's more. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so according to police, he was wanted on charges of theft, uh, endangering another person, unauthorized use of a vehicle, and criminal mischief. Uh, and he's wanted in British Columbia, uh, where that's where he's from, on charges of criminal harassment, mischief, and failure to comply. Those charges are from last fall, apparently. So, uh, the Goonies. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.